This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. I am Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas of Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm excited about this episode. It's it's Heart Month in February, and it's something near and dear to me um, throughout my life with my family and all the heart issues we've had. So I'm really excited to to kick off the episode today. We've got what I think is an all star lineup set up, and we're going to kick things off with our first guest, and that is Dr. Stuart Russell professor of medicine at Duke and also regional director of heart failure. Dr. Russell, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I, uh, as Mary said, uh, nice, to, uh, nice to be involved with this, especially during heart month. And, uh, and hopefully we can have a great discussion and learn something about heart failure. Absolutely. I think it's one of those terms that is very scary. I know when I first heard about it was when my grandfather uh, was diagnosed with it, and I was a, a bit younger, and I felt like, oh, heart failure? He's dying. It's terminal. Or, you know, it just sounds like so frightening. Um, can you talk to, a little, uh, talk to us a little bit, Dr. Russell? What is congestive heart failure? Yeah, sure. So first, let me just blame it on my uh, predecessors who came <laughs> up with this name, because um, I agree with you to some extent that... Uh, the failure part of it is the, is the tough part. Mm-hmm. Um, so congestive heart failure and, and heart failure in general is really when the heart can't keep up with the demands of the body. Uh, and so, it, you know, you think about it normally when we're running or something like that, you get short of breath. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, that's the heart not being able to keep up with what your body wants it to do or wants to do. Um, but heart failure happens uh, to people really with just normal activities of, of daily living. And so people with heart failure who have a heart that doesn't work normally get short of breath uh, with, you know, sometimes getting dressed, uh, walking, carrying groceries. Uh, they also, if you think about the heart as a pump, can't get their fluid around as well as they should, and so they will start to retain fluid. And some of the mm-hmm. common symptoms of heart failure, the shortness of breath, the swelling in the legs, having to prop your head up on a pillow at night because if you lay flat, you get short of breath, are all related to not being able to get as much fluid out as you should. And that's really where the congestive part of it comes into play, where you have congestion, mm-hmm. too much fluid, um, uh, and, and a lot of what we try to do is really get rid of that congestion. Heart failure, though, is really just the heart can't keep up with what the body is demanding. Ah, so, so you're a plumber, not an electrician. Exactly correct. <laughs> the electrical guy, sometimes it's their fault that people will end up um, seeing us. But, uh, but, yeah, it's all really about a pump that isn't doing as much as it should. Great. Now, how common is this? How common is congestive heart failure? So it really changes based on age. You know, if you look at all of America, there's probably six and a half to seven million people with it. Um, There's about three quarters of a million new new patients diagnosed each year. But with aging, it becomes much more common. So by the time you hit 80 to 90, almost 20% of people have 
some element of congestive heart failure. It may not limit them completely, but certainly the older you get, the more common it becomes. Wow. So is it part of just normal aging then? And when does it start to develop? And when do you start seeing heart failure in your patients and and some of the common causes? Yeah. So I think that's the big question is what causes it? And then why with aging does it happen? And so by far in America, the most common cause of heart failure is heart attacks. Uh, and so people have a heart attack, they don't get enough blood to their heart muscle, and that heart muscle will die. Sometimes we see people who have really bad coronary arteries not allowing enough blood flow to go there, they, but they haven't clinically had a heart attack where they end up in the hospital, you know, for, for three, four, five, six, seven days. Coronary disease and heart attacks is probably upwards of two-thirds of the um, of the people with heart failure have that as their cause. The second most common is hypertension. Mm. And so uh, you can imagine if you've got a heart muscle that's having to pump harder for year after year after year to overcome this high blood pressure, eventually it weakens. And so as you get to older and older patients, a lot of that's just related to, to hypertension over time. The heart definitely ages and mm. we see more scar tissue as hearts get older as well. A lot of these people, we talk about a term called ejection fraction. So what percent of the blood gets pumped out with each beat? You can still have a normal ejection fraction, but if your heart is stiff, you will still have all the symptoms of heart failure. The last kind of 15% is a variety of really somewhat rare, unusual uh, causes. You know, we certainly have seen some heart failure develop with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, one in about 4,000 ladies who delivers a baby will develop heart failure. Hmm. And that's probably related a little bit to some genetics that they have, but also the stress of of pregnancy on a heart. Uh, Additionally, we see some chemotherapy agents that do it. Um, there's, uh, proteins that get produced as you age. And if you make too many of them, or if you make an abnormal form that can cause heart failure. So a lot of kind of more rare, uh, individual causes. Um, but by far the two most common are going to be coronary disease and heart attacks and then high blood pressure. Mm. So going back to the word failure, it sounds so terminal. Like we said, how serious is heart failure? So definitely it's serious, and I don't want to discount it. A lot of people will hear heart failure, uh, and and we base that really on what the heart is doing. So I talked again about this ejection fraction. A normal heart ejects about 55% of the blood with each heartbeat. If you've had a heart attack and part of your heart is weak, that may drop down so you're only ejecting 30% of the blood with each heartbeat. Somebody like that, most likely on medicines, is going to do well for somewhere between 5 to 10 years. So we say they have heart failure because their ejection fraction is low, but they're not symptomatic. They're not retaining fluid, those kind of things. Over time, the heart adapts well, but it can't adapt well forever. And, and, uh, and that's when the true failure part of it comes into play. That's when they retain fluid when they get short of breath uh, with exertion and those types of things. And so that usually for most people starts kind of in the seven to 10 years post-diagnosis. Um, but at that point, you know, patients who get admitted to the, heart, to the hospital with heart failure 
Um, 20% of them are going to be dead within a year. Hmm. Um, uh, so once you've got past that initial diagnosis, done well for your time, and then start to have trouble, then the failure part of it really does, unfortunately, um, come into play. We are speaking with Dr. Stuart Russell, professor of medicine at Duke and regional director of heart failure, and we're having a, con a conversation all about congestive heart failure, and we'll continue that conversation right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. You are listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Hey, if you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, all the resources that are available to you, go online to transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Dr. Stuart Russell, and Dr. Stuart Russell is professor of medicine at Duke and also regional director of heart failure, and we're talking all about congestive heart failure. And uh, Mary, uh, briefly in the last segment, we kind of discuss some of the signs and symptoms, but we want to dive into that a little bit more. Absolutely. I think that the way that Dr. Russell, you're describing it, it really does feel like kind of a roller coaster here, you know, from diagnosis to moving through signs and symptoms. Um, talk to us a little bit, how does a patient typically get diagnosed on the front end of this? And is it something that's curable? Yeah, so most people will present with shortness of breath. Um, uh, they will often you know, initially be thought of as having asthma or maybe some bronchitis. Um, uh, eventually, they'll get a chest x-ray, and usually on that, we'll see the heart may be enlarged. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then we kind of go to more formal diagnosing. Other people really present after a heart attack, and so then it's much easier. Mm -hmm. They've had a big heart attack. We uh, know that the heart muscle is damaged, and then we can follow them from there. Mm -hmm. The first thing really that we do testing-wise is an echocardiogram, which essentially is an ultrasound of the heart. That will look at how much the squeeze of the heart is. So I've talked about this term ejection fraction, what percent of the blood is ejected with each heartbeat. Um, it's important to know for a lot of people, you think, well, if my heart works normally, 100% of the blood is ejected. No, it's only about half, a little bit more than half. So 55 is normal. Uh, so if you're told that your ejection fraction is 40%, that's not as bad as somebody who's told their ejection fraction is 10%. Mm. The other thing with the echocardiogram that we get is we can look at the valves. We can see if the valves potentially are part of the reason why the patient has a weak heart. We can also look at the various walls of the heart to see if one is not working as well as another. So a lot of kind of beneficial information we get from that echo that will say this does or doesn't look like somebody who has heart failure. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, coronary disease is a very common cause of heart failure, so we wanna know if patients do or don't have that. Um, we're less suspicious in somebody who's 20 years old who presents with heart failure than we are in somebody who's 65. 
Um, so a lot of patients will end up getting a cardiac catheterization as well mm -hmm. just to see if they've got blockages in those arteries. And the big reason to do that is that bypass angioplasties can improve heart function hmm. um, uh, if you get blood flow to areas that weren't getting enough flow before. So that's really kind of the diagnostic thing that we do mm -hmm. is, is look at that. There are some rare causes of heart failure that if you treat them and treat the actual cause, you can actually make the heart go all the way back to normal. Hmm. So patients that are hyperthyroid or hypothyroid if you get their thyroid hormone regulated, you can bring that heart back. Some patients with iron overload um, can develop heart failure. And again, deal with the primary cause where the heart is really kind of an innocent bystander and, and that innocent bystander comes back to normal. Um, so we look for things that we can reverse mm -hmm. uh, and then we really focus on the therapies that have been shown to both improve heart function but also improve the symptoms of heart failure. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most common symptoms, and especially something that I deal with with my grandfather, is his leg swelling. We're constantly like, put your feet up, lay your chair back, <laughs> you know, I'll take your yep. medicine, do your things. Why is it so common for the lower legs to swell, and, and how can this be treated? So, I mean, you've really talked about the common stuff. If you think about the heart as a pump, mm -hmm. if a pump is not doing as much as it should, mm -hmm. fluid backs up. And so it really is kind of a gravity thing. We tend to be up all day. And so things that are lower is where the fluid's going to go. And so we tell people to raise their legs because then it's not the lowest part and some of that fluid will get pulled out of the feet and the legs and go back. The primary way, though, to, to work on that is with diuretics. So diuretics are drugs that work on the kidney to make you put more sodium into the urine and, and then uh, water follows the sodium. And so it allows us to pull more fluid out of people. Now the key to that is sodium. So the other half of that is if you take less sodium in, there's less sodium and less water that you need to get rid of. And so a big part of dealing with heart failure is trying to manage your sodium intake. Mm -hmm. And so we commonly will have a nutritionist sit down with the patients. We're pretty good ourselves at saying, did you know that that can of soup, you know, comes with about three quarters of the sodium that you're supposed to have in your entire day? And so dietary restrictions, in addition to the medications that we give people, can really help with that. This weekend with the Super Bowl, when everybody <laughs> tends to have salty foods, may result in more people, honestly, being admitted next week with heart failure just because of that big salt bolus that some hearts can handle, but some hearts can handle, and they end up in the hospital. Mm. So I really will keep pitching to him. He needs to take his diuretics. <laughs> yes, and people don't like to. You know, um, it's no fun to have to go to the bathroom every 10 minutes uh, for the next two or three hours after you take your diuretic. But compared to the consequences of, you know, horrible swelling in the legs, more shortness of breath, it's, it's a reasonable price to pay. But also keep them away from the chips on Sunday. <laughs> Definitely will do. Are there other medications that can make symptoms worse or elevate these things? Yeah, so there are uh, unfortunately some common medications that can make things worse. Uh, the ibuprofen, so Advil, Motrin, all of those raise your blood pressure but actually make most people retain some sodium and will cause uh, some swelling in the legs. So if you already have a heart that's not working normally and predisposes you that way, 
um, that can be kind of a double whammy from that standpoint. Um, that's the biggest one that we tell people to stay away from. There's other medicines that are used for kind of unique things um, that patients with heart failure shouldn't get. But for general stuff that you can get over the counter, it's the Advil, Motrin, ibuprofen uh, uh, meds uh, that can cause trouble. That's really helpful. So finally, when should you seek medical attention for symptoms of heart failure before you let it get too far? Yeah, so it really is based on your symptoms. Um, and we tell our patients if, if they're going along with no swelling and over the next two days they start to have a lot of swelling, we want to hear about it. Uh, if they usually have no shortness of breath and they're waking up at night short of breath, we want to hear about it. We can head some of this stuff off before it gets to the point where they need to end up in the hospital. So progression of symptoms is really the biggest thing that we worry about and, and we want to hear about ahead of time. One thing that we haven't talked about really is medicines that we use. And there are now four different types of medicines that we try to get our patients on that work differently on the heart, um, uh, specifically to improve heart function, but also improve quality of life, keep people out of the hospital, and most importantly, keep them alive longer if you compare that pill to a placebo pill. So I would say take your meds, let us know if you run out of your prescriptions, let us know if you start to get more symptomatic. It doesn't always mean you're going to end up in the hospital, but we would rather hear about it early enough so that we can prevent that hospitalization uh, instead of meet you in the emergency room. And Dr. Russell, for those of us who really want no part of congestive heart failure, is there <laughs> anything that we can do prevention-wise, or is it just a roll of the genetic dice? So any advice for us there? Sure. So um, there's a little bit of a roll of genetic dice, but the big two, again, are high blood pressure and coronary disease. Uh, and there's a lot that we can do to prevent that. So if you smoke, stop smoking. If you're diabetic, work hard to manage your diabetes well. If you have high cholesterol levels, get those cholesterols down. Take the medicines that we give you for that. If you have high blood pressure, some people need meds. Some people just need to lose weight and exercise more. Um, uh, so the risk factors for, for coronary disease are the big risk factors for heart failure. We can't change our sex. Men have a higher risk of this than, than women do. Um, but we can exercise, we can work on our blood pressure, we can keep our weight down, and we definitely don't need to smoke. Very good. That's some wonderful advice from Dr. Stuart Russell, Professor of Medicine at Duke and Regional Director of Heart Failure. Dr. Russell, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your expertise with us. No, thanks for letting me join. It is my pleasure. Uh, it is our pleasure as well. And we are taking a quick break, but we'll be back with more. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one. With Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 
AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. And we need like a theme song I know, whenever right? we bring on Mark. <laughs> we have him on so often that there, there needs to be some sort of special introduction for him. I'm going to have to work on that. But uh, we're always pleased to welcome back from the Transitions Life Care team, Mark Philbrick. He's the Director of Education. Mark, thanks as always for coming back on the show. You're welcome. It's great being back. All right, Mark, so we've learned all about heart failure with Dr. Russell this morning. Let's talk a little bit about treatments and getting help for your condition now and kind of do a little bit of a shift. Um, Dr. Russell talked to us about how it's failure is kind of a harsh term. It's not really all that terminal up front. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is palliative care and how it can help those with heart failure? Yeah, that's a great question because palliative care is a confusing term to many people. You know, some people confuse this or use it interchangeably with hospice care or end-of-life care, and it can be scary and confusing. But the word palliative actually comes from the Latin word pallum. The root of palliative care in Latin means to cloak. So the concept of palliative care is to cloak someone in comfort. So palliative care is a board-certified specialty, similar to cardiology, oncology, pulmonology, so these doctors are trained after medical school and residency. They do extra year of fellowship in palliative care, which is training in how to manage the symptoms of advanced, serious, and life-threatening illness. And so the focus is really helping people with these chronic conditions manage their symptoms well, and also navigate those challenging conversations with patients and families as to how to deal with the pain nausea, breathing difficulties caused by congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a holistic approach. So it's not just the, the plumber <laughs> and the electrician and cardiology, but we're the gardeners, the tens of the garden, pulling out the weeds, making things more comfortable for the patient. So they help the patient both physically, but also have those conversations about the emotional impact, the spiritual and the social impact of their illness. Um, and they assist with helping the patient navigate conversations about advanced care planning, comfort measures with their family. Mm -hmm. So it's family support in conjunction with patient support on how to assist them navigating these serious uh, life-changing conditions that heart failure can, can lead to. That's wonderful. It's a very holistic approach to healthcare. Um, when can you start palliative care? Is there a certain age or a stage in the disease? I know he's Dr. Russell talked a lot about the different stages and, and times that this can set on. Um, so when can you start this? Yes, palliative care can be started anywhere in a disease trajectory. As, as he talked about, uh, heart failure and other chronic conditions are like a roller coaster where people's symptoms can be aggravated and then alleviated and back and forth. And so there's really, I see this as several stages along the trajectory of heart failure. For example, when you first get diagnosed with heart failure, first time diagnosis, people over 70 years old, one in five of those people won't survive the first year. Hmm. And half of those people will die within five years. So rate at the initial diagnosis from a cardiologist would be having a palliative care consult to help the family talk about advanced care planning. Mm -hmm. Who's going to be the health care power of attorney uh, if something doesn't go well, or the patient has, as he mentioned, a heart attack, uh, suffers a serious setback, 
who's going to make those family decisions, and also what kind of discussions that the family may have in advanced care planning as to whether they want to go on life support machines or have uh, attempts of CPR and those types of things. So the second part of that is the middle stage as he talked about of his illness. As it progresses where the symptoms begin to increase and shortness of breath pops up or weakness pops up, then working with the cardiologist, the palliative care doctor, looks at how they can manage these progressive symptoms. Mm-hmm. Or if the clinician is, uh, cardiologist is recommending certain treatments, some new medications can cause other symptoms. Mm-hmm. The third part of this is a trigger for palliative care consult is when they're getting into the later stages of disease where there's conversations about implanting a uh, defibrillator or an assistive device, those type of things that will be life-altering potentially for a patient. And of course, the final stage when the cardiologist determines that it's reached the terminal phase Mm -hmm. where they have less than six months to live and then we get into more aggressive symptom management and conversations about when hospice would be appropriate. Mm -hmm. So can patients still see their cardiologist and get curative treatments and medications while on palliative care? Yeah, absolutely. This, This is a collaborative service. It's having an additional set of eyes, ears, and and expertise along this journey. Mm -hmm. So um, all of the patients that we serve in palliative care are typically referred to us by another doctor, like a cardiologist. So we work in collaboration with the other doctors to provide an extra layer of support for that patient and also for their family. That's great. So Dr. Russell has worked in collaboration with Transitions Life Care um, on a program called Hearts at Home. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what Hearts at Home is? Yes, that's a great program. Um, We know that heart failure patients tend to bounce back and forth into the hospital frequently, especially as it begins to progress. So we worked with he and other doctors and our palliative care team to set up a program that when somebody is discharged from the hospital, Wake Med or Rex, that um, we look at what their medication regimens are and we send out a a nurse on a weekly basis to monitor the patient, have conversations, make sure the medications are working. And we did a pilot five years ago with Wake Med. And in the course of that project, we saw that patients who had palliative care follow-ups for six weeks after a hospitalization we reduced 52% of their ER visits. We reduced more than half of the return to the hospital within 30 days. And we reduced their ICU visits 100%. And in addition to that, since the patient wasn't bouncing back and forth to the hospital, we showed demonstrated costs reducing over $9,000 per patient over the course of 90 days. So they weren't bouncing back and forth to the hospital because we saw that we could initially meet these people at home and give them good care before they got into a crisis. And as a result, we reduced their fatigue, their anxiety, and their shortness of breath by 50% over the previous 90 days before they were admitted to the hospital. Hmm. So based on that, both Wake Med and Rex Hospital have set up a grant to help fund this care so it's free of charge to patients from the uh, Rex um, cardiovascular program and the Wake cardiovascular programs. So any of the doctors at Rex or Wake who work with the cardiac programs 
can refer a person in the community to our Hearts at Home program mm. at no cost to the patient. What a great program. For those, you know, we've talked a little bit about this holistic approach to care and involving the caregiver and the family. Um, for either the patient or the caregiver or loved one that's taking care of someone with heart failure, how do you go about getting signed up for palliative care? Is that a conversation with your doctor? Can you call into transitions or another palliative care provider directly? How does that work? You can either have your family doctor, your general practitioner refer you to Transitions Life Care, the heart um, at home program, or the cardiologist, either at Rex or Wake, who you're working with, uh, can make a direct referral to our programs. Um, so you can call and inquire to us, and we would redirect the patient back to their cardiologist or general practitioner. The doctor then would talk to our the cardiologist to get the paperwork, you know, what they're currently on, the type of medications and treatment plan, because we want to collaborate hand in glove with the cardiologist to make sure we're giving the best combined care possible. Excellent. We are speaking with Mark Philbrick. He's the Director of Education at Transitions Life Care. And don't forget, if you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care or view more about the resources available to you, be sure to go to transitionslifecare.org to learn more. Transitionslifecare.org. Don't go anywhere. We've got more with Mark right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Mark Philbrick. He is the Director of Education at Transitions Life Care, and we are talking all about palliative care. And, um, you know, we've mentioned this earlier, but uh, so often when we hear about palliative care, it's it's seems to be lumped into hospice. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And I think that, uh, you know, we, we've talked a little bit throughout this episode about this stair-step approach to what what heart failure looks like. You're in the hospital, you're out of the hospital, um, you're managing symptoms, maybe you've come on to palliative care. But Mark, when is the right time to ask about hospice, either as a patient or a, a loved one that is caring for someone with heart failure? It, it is uh, challenging because this is a progressive illness and, you know, um, sort of the analogy that Mark Twain had, how do you boil a frog? You know, <laughs> if you throw a frog in boiling water, it's going to hop out. But if you have the frog in the pan and just gradually increase the temperature over time, you can boil them alive. And sort of like heart failure, sometimes it's not so dramatic. Um, as he mentioned, it can progress five, ten years. So, Usually what's the trigger is a hospitalization, like you said, for an incident of um, severe heart attack or some type of acute shortness of breath. But overall, there's a couple of criteria that are what we see as the tipping points to become a hospice patient. And hospice is appropriate for the stage when that doctor, cardiologist, or palliative care physician has determined that based on what they're seeing, you have prognosis of six months or less to live. 
So the key criteria for this to qualify for hospice is that you as the patient are already getting the optimal treatment. The diuretics he mentioned, what they call vasodilators, you've had the pacemaker put in, but even with all those interventions, you're still getting worse. So the other thing is when the patient has what's called angina, mm -hmm. where they're getting heart pain, even while they're resting, and it's resistant to therapy. So usually if you have this chest pain, they have you take nitroglycerin pills, but those are no longer working. Mm -hmm. So that's a key. The other key is if the doctor says that putting in a pacemaker or a implanted defibrillator is not going to work to reverse the illness, or if the patient says, I don't want any of these devices put in me. Mm. In addition to that, he had mentioned the New York Heart Association classification. There's four stages to heart failure. The fourth stage that qualifies someone for hospice is when they're no longer able to carry on any physical activity without aggravating their symptoms. So in other words, you know, they get up, they have a hard time even brushing their teeth. Mm -hmm. So even when they're resting, they have difficulty breathing, they're fatigued, and any time they get up and do any activity, it gets worse. Mm. So those are the keys, is they're hitting that tipping point where no matter what you do, it's not making it better, and anything you do makes it worse. That's really helpful. Uh, can you talk talk to us a little bit? Why, you know, there might be some hesitation for people with the word hospice. Why not stay on palliative care forever? Are the teams different? Are the services different? What, what's the difference here? Yeah, that's a good question because if you think of palliative care as being a large bubble of services and, and comfort measures, hospice is a bubble within the bubble that's an additional level of services provided. So all hospice care is palliative, but not all palliative care includes the level of service under hospice. Mm -hmm. So with palliative care, it's a consultative service by a doctor or nurse practitioner. So it's medically oriented to manage your symptoms. And we have social work, as, as I was mentioning, to help with people with their anxiety or advanced care planning. What hospice does is add additional caregivers into that team. 90% of Americans want to die at home in the presence of their loved ones. And what hospice does is try to provide the assistance to make that possible. So in addition to the doctor or nurse practitioner that you have and the social worker you have, you would have a nurse that visits the house every day, uh, every um, week mm -hmm. to check in, make sure your medications are regulated. In addition, as the person gets more physically dependent, a certified nursing assistant, what we call a hospice aide, would come into the home and help bathe the patient, um, feed the patient, wash their clothes, tend to the daily activities on a regular basis. In addition to the support of a social worker, spiritual care is made available. We have uh, chaplains that help people navigate the spiritual aspects of what's going on as they face the end of their life. In fact, two-thirds of the families that we serve use our spiritual support for themselves, not just the patient. The other really nice service is volunteers. Mm. We have volunteers that will come to the home and provide what we call respite care. In fact, when my father was on hospice, he lived with me for three months. The volunteer came a couple of times a week, spent two hours with my father watching a movie or reading stories, and it allowed me to go out, take a hike in the woods to clear my head or go grocery shopping, and that was an additional service that was a lifesaver. The other thing that hospice provides is 
they have all the medications for the managing of the symptoms, and they provide the in supplies for the home care, like a hospital bed, bedside table, bedside commode. And all of this is covered 100% under the Medicare benefit with no co-pays. Mm-hmm. And if the person doesn't have insurance, Transition Life Care, we're a private not-for-profit, and we serve everybody regardless of ability to pay. So if someone is indigent or uninsured, the care is provided at no cost to the patient or the family. So it's a lot of additional support services that make that transition to the end-of-life journey much more support for the patient and family. That's wonderful. I want to circle back to that piece, the the caretaker, the caregiver, the family. You know, we've talked a lot throughout this episode about the ups and downs of heart failure, and it, and it's quite a long journey um, and can be very stressful on families and loved ones who are taking care of a patient that has end-stage chronic heart or congestive heart failure. Um, and hospice, it sounds like, can provide a little bit more respite care for the caregiver and, and give that break, like you mentioned. What are some other things? things that wrap the families around um, with support from the hospice team? Is it, um, you know, are they there to listen to concerns and and also help with emotional assistance and things like that for the family? Yeah, I think that there's more, when we think about heart failure, it's not just the physical heart that's failing, but our heart for our loved ones. The emotional support of somebody watching their loved one die of uh, heart failure or any other disease. So matters of the heart in a sense of the spiritual support, the psychosocial support, and also the physical support. Hospice always also provides what's called respite care. If the family begins to get burned out, it can be very emotionally and physically taxing to care for somebody 24 hours a day. And if the uh, hospice team Uh, observes that the family is becoming exhausted, there is an option to remove the patient from the home and they go to our hospice home or to a nursing care facility where we continue hospice care, but the patient is no longer in the home so the family can physically and emotionally get rest. And that's offered for up to five days at a time. So we remove the patient, the family gets rest and recharged, and then the patient comes back home and we start over again. And the fourth level of care in hospice, if the symptoms can no longer be managed at home, we don't want patients just thrown into a hospital in an intensive care and put in an environment where the families can't even visit now under COVID restrictions. So we have a hospice home here in Raleigh, 30-bed facility, where we provide the acute level of care where the family can come and visit in a home-like environment and be with their loved ones all the way to the end. And that's another um, extra support for those people whose systems can no longer be managed effectively at home. Yeah, it's a, a really critical set of services that are provided. And if you want to learn more, you can go to transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. Mark Philbrick, Director of Education with Transitions Life Care. Mark, thanks as always for coming on the show. We always appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. It's, it's wonderful to be here, and I just uh, enjoy paying it forward to others, having gone through this experience myself. Yeah, uh, and we really appreciate that. And, you know, we know your story here. And so uh, for those who are going through anything similar, please be sure to check out transitionslifecare.org. If you haven't already, there's, again, plenty of resources there uh, that can help you or a loved one. Transitionslifecare.org. 
org. We are out of time for today. I want to thank our guests, of course, Mark Philbrick and Dr. Stuart Russell. Uh, we appreciate them coming on the show today. If you missed any part of today's program and want to go back and listen to it or catch up on past programs, you can go to WPTF.com, click on the podcast button from there, find Aging Matters, and you can view the entire archive of episodes that we have had of Aging Matters. Again, we are out of time, but we hope you will join us again next weekend. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.